in Albuquerque, and I'll announce now on the tape program that it looks like I'm going to be able to go at long last after 12 solid years to England sometime late in the month of August. I may also go on over to Berlin and back on the same trip, but hopefully we'll be able to spend a long weekend with the British Church, and they've been telling me that I need to come over there for 12 solid years. The birthday of the Church of God International will be this coming July 21st. That's the 12th year since our incorporation. And the very first meeting of the board, we were looking at it uh, yesterday, took place on that very same day. I think the very first meeting of our three-member board of trustees was on July 21st of 1978. Who knows, maybe July 21st will work out to be about the time we have a groundbreaking out there. We can stick a shovel in the ground and break ground for our brand new building. That would be kind of significant because 12 is a number that means new beginnings or organized beginnings, and perhaps that'll work out. Of course, we can always try to work it out that way, but that would maybe we, we shouldn't do that. My dad used to talk to us kids when we were growing up about God and about religion. My sisters were 12 and 10 years older than I, and so when I was about three or four, obviously it all fell on very deaf ears when I was a little boy. I didn't know what in the world they were talking about. But one time when my father was going on and on about God was doing this and God was doing that and God said so and so, the younger of my two older sisters said to him, but Daddy, God is just not real to me. You can't see God, you can't touch God, you never hear from him, and it just isn't real to me somehow. Well, my father proceeded to try to point out why God is not real to most people. He never forgot that, and in ensuing years he brought a number of sermons on why is God not real to people. The entire Western world of Christianity worships an absentee God. There are many people, of course, who make fortunes by claiming they have daily conversations with him, but I won't deal with liars and charlatans and frauds because that's not my purpose here today. People that say, the Lord told me last night to do this and that are just flat lying. That's all there is to it. Because once God's word was complete, then God no longer was speaking to people audibly or through angelic messengers as he did in the days that the Bible was being written. If you look around the world today, isn't it amazing that the second largest nation on the face of the earth still worships cows? Isn't that incredible? Do you think the Indian people are stupid? Do you think people in the nation of India are some of the least intelligent in the world? Do you know that there are more people that speak English, a very erudite, a very high-class, educated English language in India than there are in England? The British, of course, ruled in England for many, many decades, and many generations. So here are over 550 million human beings who worship cows. They can see a cow, cows out there lying in an intersection in Bombay chewing its cud. People, whether you're dealing with Confucius or Buddha or animism, animism rather, or some of the religions of the early savages of this part of the world, Incas, Aztecs, Mayas, with their snakes' heads and with their demonic-looking imagery, always wanted to have something that they could see. Whether it's the ancient stone idols down on Easter Island that appear to be staring upward, waiting for some god to come, or the days in ancient Babylon and Egypt, Greece and Rome, when they worshipped 
everything from Baal to Astarte to Ashtaroth to Vishnu or Dagon, people have wanted to have a god that they can see. There's one great religion that has a visible evidence of God in all sorts of manifestations, dreams, weeping statues and idols, uh, various uh, burial garments that allegedly have blood stains upon them, enough pieces of the cross that once someone opined that if they were all gathered together you could build 45-room homes, but be that as it may, there are relics that exist all over Western Europe and England and here in the United States, and a religion that has its pope with its pomp and ceremony, with its tremendous cathedrals, with its very impressive array of saints who allegedly are able to communicate with human beings. I recently got a call from a very beloved relative of mine. She was a little perplexed because she had been looking around her local community and had been meeting with some people that had caused her to be a little afraid. As a young mother, she now realizes she needs God in her life. With a 13-year-old daughter, she is sure of it. She doesn't want to inherit some of the problems that are commonplace in society today, and so she would like to see if there couldn't be some religious underpinning to her daughter's education. She called me her uncle. She knew a lot about her grandfather's religion. She wasn't in favor of it because of all that her mother had told her. She didn't want fear religion. She didn't want to be taught about the fear of going into a Gehenna fire or a lake of fire or burning in hell fire, as they say, for evil conduct. So she'd been searching in her community, and for many, many months she'd been going to all kinds of different churches. She said, Uncle Ted, we went to one, and they were all coming up to the altar in front of the minister, and they were bawling and sobbing, and every now and then the minister told them to hold their hands up and wave their hands in the air. And she said, it made me afraid. She said, some of these people seemed to be so demonstrative and so carried away in their emotionalism that I had a funny feeling about it. I just thought, this isn't for me. Well, she'd been to several other churches, and she didn't feel comfortable. She works with a girl in the same office who likewise is searching for the truth. And I sent a whole box of literature to her, and she had never read what her Uncle Ted has written, so I sent her an entire box of books and magazines and booklets and articles, and I said, I would urge you to slowly study them and to underline important points, to look up and to check everything in the Bible and find out if it is true, and sent her an entire library, an array of information that she can look up. But the very first thing she asked me was, how can I find out if there really is a God, and how can I find out if he is real, and how do I know, Uncle Ted, because my daughter asked me. I'm telling my daughter about God and about the Bible, about Grandpa, and she asked me, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? How do you know it isn't just written by a group of men? Well, these are valid questions. We deal with them all the time in our mail. We deal with them, obviously, on television, because I'm aware that vast segments of my audience on any given television broadcast are people with the same kinds of questions. I think it was just, was it two weeks ago now, or last Sunday, I forget, it must have been two weeks ago, uh, I was asked to deliver a sermon to a group of Sunday-keeping people out in Emerald Bay, where I live. And it was very difficult to choose a subject. I tried to do something very, very simple. In other words, I'm saying this facetiously. 
I went to Romans, the eighth chapter, and tried to talk about the entire purpose of human life. But I wanted to be on safe ground, because if I'm just quoting the Bible, it's hard to take issue with what the Bible says about Christ being the firstborn among many brethren, and the purpose of our lives is to become born of God. But it was difficult, because I wanted to start with evolution. I wanted to start with creation. I wanted to start with the very basis of the entire question, does God exist? Is the Bible his word? In Romans, the first chapter, the Apostle Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold back the truth. It should read. The King James English is a mistranslation. In verse 18 of Romans 1, the Greek word is katabalo, which means down in place or in time, K-A-T-A, and it means to suppress or to hold back the truth, not to hold it in the sense of believing it or understanding it, which would obviously be a contextual contradiction, but who hold back the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in or to them. The Greek word en means to or in them, for God has shown it unto them. Now, how does God show himself? How can that which is able to be known about God, evident to you. How can it be evident in a daily sense? Nobody here has ever seen God. The Bible says that. You have neither seen God, no man can look on God and live. You have neither seen his face nor heard his voice at any time, said Christ. In 1 John, he says eventually, 1 John 5, he said, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And Christ said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he said, No man has ever seen the Father. How can you see or understand about an invisible God? It says in verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. Again, a little problem with the English language translation in 1611. It means by looking at the creation, extrapolating from the physical to the spiritual, from the visible to the invisible, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Then follows a very lengthy condemnation of Greek philosophers, of skeptics, of all kinds of people, including homosexuals. It said in verse 26 and 7 that an awful lot of the excuses that were conjured up by Greek and other philosophers like Plato and Epictetus, who were avowed and renowned homosexuals, was because, just like some admitted homosexuals in our modern era who, who admitted to the fact that if they accepted the concept of a divine creator being, they had to accept the concept of mores or laws, and because it would interfere with their desired behavior, they sought to come up with some other explanation for human life and for the existence of matter. So I won't get into that part, but back to the chapter, verse uh, 18 through 21. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. In Colossians 1.15, it talks about the invisible God. And in 1 Timothy 1.17, it talks about how God is eternal, immortal, and invisible. A little later on, we'll look at the 11th chapter of Hebrews that says the very same thing. The Apostle Paul was dealing with that same concept when he was even quoting one of their own pagan philosophers, and said, In him 
we live and move and have our being. Now, you've heard some of the poems, you know, about birds in the air, and birds got to fly, and fish got to swim, and so on. A, a fish swims in water, doesn't it? How does a fish survive in water? Stick your head underwater and hold you in the wash basin for a few minutes, and we're dead. We can't handle that. Well, fish have gills, and gills extract, you all know, oxygen. What is oxygen? Well, you look it up in an encyclopedia like I did again this morning, and it will deal with this gas, this strange gas that is called oxygen, and try to tell you all about it, what it does, and how it reacts according to heat and certain uh, stimuli such as cold and so on, how it can be separated. We know that we exist by breathing in and breathing out oxygen. Now, even now as you sit there, your lungs are somehow able to take a little bitty formation of matter, and that matter is two little globules called hydrogen stuck together and a little round globule called oxygen stuck together with the two hydrogen, H2O, right? You learned that in sixth grade, I suppose, seventh grade. You all know that. How is your lung, how, how are both of your lungs, as you sit there in this room, able to perform a symbiotic relationship with the plants in this room or out there in the foyer and all the grasses and trees and shrubs in East Texas? Because if you weren't doing that, you couldn't survive. Because, you see, the plants cannot survive without carbon dioxide. What is carbon? I'll tell you in a moment. We'll look it up. Dioxide. Two oxygen atoms together with carbon, right? Now, where does it come from? Only from animals and humans who alike breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. Monoxide, that's only one oxygen atom to carbon. Dioxide, two to one, and you understand that because you remember your junior high school education, no doubt. We also live in an area that is like a mantle, like a blanket, just like fish swim in a liquid gaseous substance, which is water that is liquid, which is exactly the same as air, except in a different form, right? You all understand that, I'm sure. And their gills act exactly as do our lungs. When the Apostle Paul said, he is not far from any one of us, though he be not far from us. He talked about the pagan philosophers and their searching and striving for a concept of God that leads to many civilizations to even sacrifice little babies on an altar of some grinning, leering piece of stone that some artisan has carved out and says, this is what God looks like, and because life should be celebrated, and we know where babies come from, and obviously there's got to be some power, some force, some energy, because where does heat and light and lightning and storms and thunder, and where do ice pelts coming out of the sky, and where does the water come from, and, and what causes the seasons, and what makes the heavens to move? And I mean, they were just filled with questions with no solution, so they knew there had to be a God. So they made them one. And they said, now, to pacify this God every now and then, because God gives us all these babies, let's give him one back. And so you can look at some of the Tel Megiddo remains that have been unearthed in Megiddo, which is just about 11 miles or so southwest of Nazareth, where I have been. And they claim that's one of the bloodiest places on the face of the earth. And during the time of King Ahaz, 
right in the strata that is identified with all the pottery and the shards and so on, that identifies that era of the northern reign of the kings of Israel, not one of whom ever returned to the true God and gave up on calf worship, the worship of cows, from the days of Jeroboam to the last king that was taken away. They never tried to return to the true God in Israel. And here are those little stone jars, all covered with dust, and they take them and they unearth them with their little brushes, and then they get inside and they pull out little, fragile, infant bones. And here are the burial jars of somebody's son and daughter back during the reign of a king of Israel when they thought they ought to sacrifice their kids to some pagan god that looks like a cow. Now, what I'm talking to you about today is an attempt, if there are people in this audience, children and adults, who have trouble with the concept of God, who think we can hide from God, think that when it gets dark, God doesn't see, think that God doesn't see inside kitchens, bathrooms, bedrooms, garages, or behind barns, think that God doesn't see in the back seat of an automobile in a drive-in movie. Anybody who thinks that God is so far off and out there, absentee, gone away, the other side of the universe, and he just isn't real to you. Let me try to help. Is breathing real? Remember the line in My Fair Lady about breathing in and breathing out. Well, here you are existing with a breath of air that I say God gives you. How do you explain the symbiotic relationship between men, animals, and plants, that the one could not live without the other? But it breaks further down. The plants, all of which are flowering and have to be pollinated, cannot live without butterflies and bees. And in turn, the bees and the butterflies cannot live without the plants. So which came first? Now, I don't need to go into evolution because that would take me two years and ten months and I wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface, but just to remind you of some of these basic questions. Your body is basically air, but in liquid form, because air and water are basically the same thing. Let's just do it by asking, what is water? This morning on my CNN newscast, I was reminded of some very serious problems involving water. It showed huge forest fires, well, grass fires, raging down in one of the traditionally wettest areas of the United States of America, down around the gigantic Everglades swamps in South Florida. Terrible drought, crackling dry, thousands of creatures being obliterated thousands of acres on fire. A traditionally desert area where just to the east, uh, to the west of here rather, mesquite begins and the pines do not grow any further, and with them comes the prickly pear in the great western American desert. Hundreds of poor people you ought to be sorry for today that are still standing over there or going around in rowboats. The water is to the eaves of their homes in Dallas, Texas and some of the suburbs. Gigantic floods, more than a year's supply from January 1st to this date in May, already having fallen in the central sections of Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, and some of the areas of this midsection of the country that have been just deluged by horrible floods that are costing hundreds of millions of dollars and killing people and just destroying homes and businesses and factories and so on. Meanwhile, they are meeting out in California where they know the burgeoning growth of Southern California that gets about 80% of its water from Northern California will by 20, oh, 
9 or 2010 or so be requiring several times the amount of water it currently is devouring with that more than 14 million people in that megalopolis strip city from Santa Barbara to San Diego, and they've got to have far more water where they're going to get it only from Northern California if they're but. Northern California is experiencing a drought, and the gigantic reservoirs up in the mountains show maybe 30, 40, 50 feet of shoreline with just a little muddy puddle in the bottom. So out in California, they're having very serious political difficulties, where the various senators that represent a constituency and businesses, farms, and ranches, where 46% of all the vegetables in the United States are grown in the San Joaquin Valley, want to fight for their water rights. Now, that's the stuff of a good Western movie, isn't it? Who in this room doesn't remember that mankind from time immemorial, from Akkad, Babylon, Kalna, and Nineveh, to the western desert of the United States, to the oases of the great Sahara Desert, have fought and killed one another over what? Over that 80 to 90 percent of what you are, your bloodstream is 80 to 90 percent water, and you are about 90 percent water and you have to have water to live. So what is water? Well, science really doesn't know, except that science is able to see the way it acts. So science tells you, here's what water is. Water is two atoms of hydrogen. Hydro, Greek word for wet, right? Gen, you understand that? Life-giving, genesis, wet, wet life. Life-giving wetness, that's what hydrogen means. Two atoms of hydrogen to one atom of oxygen, and that represents 20% of our atmosphere. I think a lot of you may have seen recently there was a replay of the movie about the terrible explosion and the death of all the people in the Hindenburg. When you take hydrogen and you separate it from oxygen and vice versa, then hydrogen becomes a very light gas. However, it can explode, and you all know that when you're flying in a jet aircraft and they say, they are very calm about it. I can't understand why they don't really give you a warning, but they say, in the event of sudden cabin depressurization, your oxygen mask will drop, and you should immediately put it on your face and then extinguish all cigarettes. And they don't say, because if you don't, oxygen is tremendously explosive and we all dissolve in a gigantic flash. They don't say that. But they do say, please extinguish all cigarettes and Mothers, please take the oxygen, put it on your face first, then put it on your child, and they tell you how to fasten it, and sort of stands in the aisle, and every single time you fly, they go through the same litany and tell you how to get the oxygen over your face. Because if you don't, there's no oxygen up there for you, well, a little bit, but not enough for you to breathe. Up there at 37,000 feet, you die in moments, right? Sure. So you've got to have oxygen. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't it wonderful that it's out there, that it's in here? Now, it had to come from someplace. You're right. It is produced. Now, what produces it? Well, little tiny microscopic organisms floating around in all of our freshwater rivers, lakes, and ponds, and seas are called diatoms, or two atoms together, a little kind of a, a chemical, cellular-like existence of some sort, not, not akin to a yeast spore, but diatoms produce oxygen. But through photosynthesis, the sunshine shining on leaves that have under their underside little Venetian blinds that are actually giving off through perspiration moisture, the plants are also absorbing from the air exactly what we breathe out, carbon dioxide. 
as they absorb that, they feed on it, they utilize it, and then they produce and give off into the air constantly oxygen. Isn't that wonderful? People take it for granted. They know nothing about it. They're not interested. They don't study it. They went through school and through with education. Now it's time to go out and be a garage mechanic the rest of my life. Don't even want to think about who I am, where I came from, where I'm going. And all around us, the Apostle Paul said, For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, my goldfish, if I had a goldfish, lives and moves and swims and has his being in a little bitty pot of water that big, right? That's his environment. All I got to do, right, to wean him away from that is grab him by the lip, haul him out, and let him breathe air for a while. Like the fellow down there caught a huge bass, about 12 pounds. Was down, uh, Guy Carnes and I heard that in Florida one time. He was down there in a bass tournament, I guess, and he caught a gigantic bass. He thought, oh no, I don't have a live well. How am I going to keep this thing alive? I don't want him to lose weight and so on. I don't want him to die. So he thought, well, I know what I'll do. As I'm going along fishing the rest of the day, I'll drag him out of the water and keep him out for a longer period of time until he gets used to it. So he was driving along in the boat, and he'd put the bass in the, in the bottom of the boat, and the bass would kind of flip and flop there and kind of look glassy-eyed, and he'd wait about five minutes and put him back in the water, let him swim a while, and bring him back out. Leave him out ten minutes, then put him back in a little bit, and then pretty soon he was getting to where he could leave that bass out about 45 minutes. So he thought, well, it's evening time, I'm going back to the dock, and I've got this bass weaned away from the water now to where I think he can exist on air. So he had the bass on a stringer. And he was walking up the plank to the dock, and a bass gave a mighty heave and flipped off that stringer and fell in the lake and drowned. <laughs> now, you got to think about that for a minute, or that'll get by you. Because I had to say, now, how could that happen, you know? And, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. But anyway, if I have a goldfish in a little bitty bowl, and he's just swimming happily around, in that bowl he lives and moves and has his being. But most of you are utterly unaware that you are moving, living, continually in an atmosphere which consists of matter. There isn't any of this stuff out there a very few miles. Two miles up, you die. That's a very narrow envelope. As I've given the analogy before, if you have a desk-sized globe about yay big, the little thin lacquer that you could peel off with a sharp knife is thicker than the mantle of air that supports life on our planet. Isn't that amazing? It's actually thicker. Another analogy. A cue ball is pretty smooth, isn't it? Some of you guys have been in a pool hall in your lives. Very smooth, a cue ball. Actually, a cue ball is far rougher than our Earth. Think of Everest, K2, Aconcagua, 22,600 and some, I think, down in the Andes. Some of these huge big peaks, the giant Rift Valley of East Africa, Death Valley in California. Think of the highs and lows of this Earth. But if you shrunk the earth to the size of a cue ball, it would be infinitely smoother because the little tiny microscopic striations and scratches that machine tools make on a cue ball would produce rift valleys and crevices and mountains that would be so enormously steep and huge and gigantic beyond any mountain on the face of this earth, there is no comparison. Interesting, isn't it? Just to give you some concepts. When you thoroughly mix hydrogen gas and oxygen gas, and you introduce a spark or a flame, it blows up. And guess what it forms? Water. Does that blow your mind? Isn't that incredible? It's true. Look it up. That's what happened when the Hindenburg exploded. The fire fed, and the fire got put out. And the fire fed, and the fire got put out. The thing rained water on its own fire. Incredible. 
It takes one pound of water. Now, if you take one pound of water, that's not very much water, because, you know, water weighs, it's pretty heavy. It weighs about 10 pounds approximately, and kerosene about 7 pounds, and gasoline about 6 pounds per gallon. One pound of water will produce 10 cubic feet of oxygen gas, and obviously, because it is two to hydrogen and one to oxygen, double that amount, right, of of the uh, hydrogen gas. And one cubic foot, 12 inches by 12 inches in a metal tin of water, if it would be contained in a plastic jug, it would be awfully hard for some of you housewives to pick it up because guess what it would weigh? 12 inches by 12 inches. Anybody guess? 62 pounds, depending on temperature. But at normal room temperature. If it's hotter, it weighs less. If it's colder, it weighs a little more. And that's interesting too, isn't it? What happens when water is in any kind of a state, I don't care whether it's dropping, falling, rushing, in a fall, a rivulet, a creek, a stream, or a bowl, or the little goldfish bowl on your mantle. It is constantly struggling to cling together, isn't it? So when you drop water out of an eyedropper and you watch it, first it starts off in an elongated thing, then gradually the little teardrop thing just struggles to get back in, it becomes round, and if you look closely, that round becomes rounder, so that when you drop melted lead that has the same proclivity of any other liquid when it's falling through a tower and drops into a chilled basin. They call it chilled shot. Some of you farmers that have killed gophers or gone out hunting for pheasant, you've heard about chilled shot. You wonder how they get it round? Well, they just drop it. Molten lead drops through little kind of uh, spigots through into a wash tub of water, to make it simple, and it becomes round, doesn't it, when it's falling. And you've seen that in some of the slow-motion TV ads because it's constantly trying to cling together. And it resists any entry. You know, you can float a needle on the top of a glass of water. The needle's a lot heavier than water, but if you lay it down very carefully on its side, it won't enter the water. Any kid who ever did a belly flop knows that it's real hard to get into that water in that position. It's much easier, you know, you go like this. When I was a little kid, I thought you did it like a frog. You went like that and kind of looked real awkward. Look, Dad, I can jump through the inner tube. And the water would let you in. But literally, if you dropped from a very high distance, all spread out like that, it would kill you because the water would hit you just like steel. There was a kid that broke his head open because he hit a leaf that was floating on the water from a 30-foot tower in Eugene, Oregon, and it killed him. Because the leaf floating on the water and the water clinging together and resisting anything entering it caused such a blow to his head that it killed him. Now, he hadn't entered with his arms first. He went head first, and it killed him. People have fallen out of aircraft or off of high buildings and so on into water, and they've died as a result of it, because those molecules are rapidly trying to cling together, aren't they? And trying to seek mean level, because gravity works upon it. All these laws at work that we take for granted. What happens when water molecules that are moving around and saying, let's cling together, stop moving? How do you make them stop? Anybody volunteer? I think you know. You, you just keep cooling them. The hotter they are, the more rapidly they move, right? Until finally... And next time your kids wonder, well, Mom, how did that air get in the bottom of the silex? Where does the air come from? Get the World Book Encyclopedia, turn to the, the article water, open it up, show your child, see what's happening here is that we're releasing this gas by heat, and it's causing the water molecules to rush around in frenzy, and they're releasing, and the bubbles are coming to the top, and you'll understand what's happening. But when you slow them down through cold, what happens when you get them absolutely still? They don't move anymore at all. Everybody knows it becomes ice. And what is ice? It's rigid water. 
Icy cold, 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees centigrade. Isn't it wonderful? Now, if you stop to think about all the wonderful things that we could deal with, we would be here for hours and not even begin to scratch the surface. All I'm trying to do is to show you something about the environment in which we move and live and breathe and trying to pick upon those things which are absolutely essential to our lives. Because if we do not understand that God's great invisible power is evident by assessing, appraising, understanding, dealing with the things that we can see, matter in all of its forms, energy, the things we can understand scientifically, then we will continue to drift along wondering sometimes and using excuses sometimes, as many people have done. I wonder if I was just believing what some man told me. I wonder if it was all a hoax. I wonder if there really is a God. Oftentimes people have gotten disappointed in a religious leader. And they've said, yeah, but he did, or, well, he said, or he disappointed me, so therefore you're not breathing air anymore, and you're not drinking water anymore, and you don't subsist on food anymore, and there isn't symbiosis anymore, and the sun isn't shining, and the moon isn't in its orbit, and the world isn't turning, and the seasons don't progressively march through the years as the earth does its daily journey about the sun. Because a man lied, or cheated, or got involved in a scandal, or disappointed you. God will never disappoint you. Jesus Christ will never disappoint you. The power of God is constant. You're affixed to the earth, and the only variable is what you put in your mouth, depending upon what you say you, quote, weigh, end quote, which really is a, an artificial way of saying the degree of the pull of, gra of gravity upon my body. If you were to look into the very elements of the universe, you know, a lot of people take vitamins. Just take the word apart. What's it mean? Life-giving minerals, right? That's where they got the word, vitamin, a mineral which is life-giving. And they've tried to compartmentalize them. Now, it's not, God didn't make them into A, B, and B complex, and, all, and C, and so on. That's just some scientific designation to try to determine how it is that in one little sandbox of, say, 12 square feet by about a foot deep of soil, you can grow any vegetable known to man. And that seed that you put in the same soil pulls out of that soil totally different nutrients. How's that happen? How is it that the carrot knows to be a carrot and knows to become yellow? How is it that the radish knows to be a radish, kind of a member of the turnip family with a real hot, spicy little red exterior that burns your tongue? How is it that corn becomes corn or wheat, wheat, and you plant whatever seed it is in the same box of soil and it becomes whatever it is? Isn't that marvelous? So then what is that stuff? Well, it's called food. See, that's what fish are saying. You've got to understand that. When you ever look, go the next time to an aquarium, and when you see a fish, if he ever does look at you, I think they don't really see you through the glass. I've tried to get them to act or react when they come by, and I think that they see a reflection, so maybe they don't see you. But if you're in a scuba diving outfit, or if you're down in a snorkel outfit, and you see a fish come up to you, they're asking a question all the time, aren't they? They're coming up with their eyes, and they're looking at you, and they're saying, food? 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 You know? They're, they're wondering, because the only reason they're coming over there is that might be food, right? So every time a fish is looking at you, he's saying, food? And when it's a shark, you know, there you are. you got this thing on, you're there, and this great white shark comes up, food? <laughs> you know, then you, you know this is not food, you know, and you start for the top. But i got it figured out that fish are always asking a question, is that food? 
Now, what is food? Well, that's a funny word. Say it about ten times. It loses all sense of meaning. You ever try that with the English language? Just say the same word over and over. Food. That was one of the dumbest sounding words. What is that? That's my food. It's a dumb sounding word, isn't it? But we have to eat it every day. And then what does it become? It becomes part of us. Where did it come from? Dirt. My 12 foot by 1 foot sandbox, right? It came from dirt. And those particular roots got that particular element out of that particular dirt and made it in that particular shape, right? Yellow, green, red, whatever it is, and you eat it. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that magical almost? Isn't that wonderful? And we take it for granted. And people say, I can't see how you can say there is a God. I mean, I, I believe that, I believe what they say about dolphins. I mean, dolphins, why, once they were a little small quadruped. And they came out of the sea in the Devonian period and began climbing trees, haven't we? got catfish with fins that walk along the soil. See, you can see evolution in, in process right there. we got a tree-climbing catfish over in the tropics. They actually climb. That's true. Did you know that? The dogfish does that. Why do they call it a dogfish? have an affinity for trees. They climb out of the water, and they go right up a tree, and they're called a dogfish of some kind. So it's crazy, but they look at that and they say, evolution in process. So the little quadruped went back out into the water one day, and he kept swimming further and further as the generations came and went. And finally, he moved his snout. I don't know how he did this. Just think about this. He had his snout here, but it slowly began to move between his eyes. And before that time, all of his kids were born head first. But now, because he'd become a dolphin, that wouldn't be too good because they're dragging around underwater. They'd all drown. So now it's better to have them born tail first, even though it is a little more painful for mom. When you think of the way a dolphin is shaped, you know, it's a lot easier head first, but they come out tail first because they would die otherwise. So when you start thinking about the arguments of evolution, that the closest living relatives to crocodiles are, ready for this, hummingbirds. That's what they say in evolution because of bone structure. And they talk about these crazy creatures that they find in the fossils and the rocks, and evolution is going on around us even now today. You know, the last time I saw a statistic on the subject, 44% of Christian evangelical ministers standing in pulpits in Sunday mornings all across our United States of America deny the literal second coming of Jesus Christ, and many of them don't believe there is a God. They're preaching and they're using the name of Jesus Christ, but they don't, they believe in evolution. They believe God is a first cause. They believe Christ is the idea of God or something, but they don't believe in a literal divine creator being who exists and who knows you by your first name. There are many of them who don't believe in God in a way that I know we do believe in God. No, there is not a leg that evolution has to stand on, but when you look at creation, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul pointed to, it is what all the great prophets pointed to, Isaiah said, Look up, behold all of these things. He calleth their name by number. It is he that sitteth on the circle of the earth. All of his inhabitants are on this earth as nothing before the eternal God. When the apostle Paul talked to the kings before who he, whom he was brought on trial, he talked about the existence of a divine, all-wise creator and said, In him we live and move and have our being. When he wrote to the Romans, he talked about the invisible God being visible by looking at the things that are. And what did God himself do? In the case of the protracted argument between all of the detractors and those who were sure that Job's affliction was the result of some great evil in Job. Finally, in the latter chapters of Job, what did God show Job to get him to understand the greatness of God? 
He showed him gigantic sea creatures. And we understand in looking at some of that language in the book of Job that he may have been pointing to creatures that do not exist anymore today, and that in spite of what evolutionists and geologists and paleontologists have said, you can get in your automobile and you can drive from here in probably two and a half hours to Glen Rose, Texas, although it may be underwater right now, just down south to Dallas-Fort Worth a little bit, a little southwest, I think, isn't it? Down near where there's a big nuclear plant going in. And there's a creek bed there, and there's a museum there, and you can walk in there, and you can walk along, and you can see many cases of sandstone where there were reporters and television cameras and a lot of other people there who were there at the moment the archaeologists were unearthing tons of strata that obviously had never been disturbed, so they'd make sure that everybody understood there was no fakery involved here, no skullduggery, and there are the naked footprints of men and the footprints of identifiable huge bird-like dinosaurs in the same soil. What God showed Job, I think, was a brontosaurus. You read that chapter where he talks about how this great creature jumps into the ocean and just makes it froth and talks about his tail moves like a cedar and talks about these giant creatures and then says to Job, where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Ask him about an eagle with its young. Ask him about wild creatures. Ask him about gigantic behemoths, as he called them, or gigantic creatures in the sea or great land animals like huge oversized rhinoceri and elephants. So when Job looked at all the creation, what did God show him? The creation. He didn't show him a doctrinal argument. He didn't show him some little bit of secret mystical esoterica. He didn't appeal to his vanity to show him some little thing he could understand. And now he could follow God because he had his mantra, go around, oom, oom, you know, like people, they've, they've discovered God. They've, they've got a mantra. There's a famous movie actress that's writing books and becoming far wealthier than she ever was as a movie actress and has a whole cult of people following sort of New Age religion, this channeling stuff, just getting your mind to focus in a certain way. And lo and behold, there he is, absolute satanic nonsense. And every time in the Bible, the Creator God, His patriarchs, His prophets, and His righteous apostles point to the divine, all-wise Creator who gives us every breath of air we breathe. He points to the creation, to the creatures. Yes, to birds and bees and butterflies and sunlight and sunsets and beautiful landscapes, to the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, to human life itself. Do me a favor. Next time you take a shower, stand directly under the water and close your ears and listen to the water hitting your brains through the top of your head. Just do it. It's fun. Teach you something. You can do it while you're sitting there in your seat. You want put your hand over your mouth and your nose at the same time. See how long you can hold it. It's a good exercise. And when you get up, if you want to, just close both eyes and try to get out of the church without anybody helping you. And think about your eyes. And then go look it up in an encyclopedia and learn about the rods and cones and why it is some of us don't have them kind of adjusting the way they should, and we're sitting here looking through these things. Look up the human eye, the human heart. Look up the human mind. Look up water. Look up air. Look up the sun. Look up the moon. And then look up and worship Almighty God. I want to conclude by going to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews.
This is a very beautiful chapter on the subject of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, while you're going there, I'll go back to Romans and remind you of something that I didn't tell you to begin on purpose. Paul said in Romans, the first chapter, before the verse we got to, just a little bit before it, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Jesus said to his disciples, including doubting Thomas, Blessed are thou who, having seen, believe. Blessed are they who, having not seen, also believe. That's you and me, isn't it? We haven't put our hand in his womb. We haven't seen him. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then comes our text, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is evident. What's he talking about? Faith. But there is evidence of faith, and that is looking at matter and looking at creation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. By it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds, the ages, were framed by the word of God. Now listen to this with what we've gone over today. So that things, that's matter, that's solid material things, which are seen, were not made of things which do appear. You are about 80 to 90% water, but water can be turned into gas. I guess now we understand why some wives call their husbands a big old windbag. I don't know, but actually, uh, looking at it another way, just how real are we? we? We like to think we're real. Next time you eat a watermelon, don't eat one piece. Get a nice big old piece of watermelon and put it in a cup and get you a spoon and mash it. And just keep on mashing it and pressing it down. And then extract all of the meaty part, you know, the fiber from the bottom of it. And you'll be looking at a very good analogy of yourself. Because there's very little that is really you. Most of you is just water. But water, as we've explained, is also air. So if everything is made up of molecules and atoms, and if atoms cannot be seen, and if you know there are atoms, why does anyone say, because I cannot see God, I'm not sure he exists? You can't see electricity, only what it does. You can't see heat, you can only feel it. You can't see electrical waves or radio or VHF waves, but you know they are there. You believe in dozens of things you cannot see. By faith, it talks about Abel offering a more righteous sacrifice, and Enoch, and says in verse 6, by without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. A little later on toward the end of the chapter, notice beginning in verse 24 about Moses, by faith Moses, when he had come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. But wait a minute. In Moses' case, he did have 
a wonderful experience, didn't he? Remember when he said, show me thy way, because I want to be the kind of an emissary to your people that goes to them in confidence. First of all, when he saw the burning bush and he heard a great thundering, booming voice that said, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. He asked, who shall I say is sending me? Who are you? He heard a voice that said, I am that I am. Bobby stood his hair on end and said, wow. I will be what I will be. I exist. I am real. Actually, the universe is not as real as God because the universe is compacted from energy. Matter is energy transformed, and matter can be changed and released back into energy. God took energy in his hands and made matter. We call it carbon, or lead, or gold, or whatever. But it can be changed, and it can absolutely disappear, and it's not permanent. God is permanent. And the next thing he wanted, he wanted to see it. He said, show me thy way. So finally, because God loved Moses... And he knew he needed the extra boost for his faith. He said, I will shield you with my hand as I pass by in a cleft of the rock. And you get in that cleft of the rock and don't you look until I turn my back. And I'll take my hand away from you and you can see my hind parts. And Moses looked and thought he saw what looked like a man departing from him in a cloud swallowed up out of his sight. Because God looked like a man. And it must have stood Moses' hair on end. But it said here that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And so, to the end of this chapter, it says in verse 35, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Chapter 12, he goes on, Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the stake, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. If your child says to you, as my sister said to my dad, but daddy, God doesn't seem real to me. Don't start with some doctrinal argument. Don't give them some idea of yours. Go get a simple world book encyclopedia and turn to the article on water, air, carbon, the sun, the moon, and sit down and read it to your child. And just keep asking how and why. They'll come to understand, and God will be real to them.